You're right in D.C. with Gail Trotter. This is Gail Trotter, host of Right in D.C. Today, I'm so excited to welcome as our guest, Megan Cox-Gordon. Megan and I know each other from a women's writing group where we met once a month to talk with different authors and share tips about writing and a love of reading. So I'm so excited to welcome her to this podcast today because she has just written a new book called The Enchanted Hour, The Miraculous Power of Reading Aloud in the Age of Distraction. Megan, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I am so happy to be with you. Just want to tell you a little bit about Megan's background. She's a book critic. You might have read some of her pieces in the Wall Street Journal. She's been the Wall Street Journal's children's book reviewer since 2005. She's written in many other publications, including the Washington Examiner, the Daily Telegraph, the Christian Science Monitor, the Washington Post, San Francisco Chronicle, National Review. She lives very close to the belly of the beast, uh, Washington, D.C. She lives in Bethesda, Maryland. She's married and she has five children. So I'm not sure what makes her the most expert about this topic. The fact that she has five children and has lived the very premise of her book or that she's a book reviewer for the Wall Street Journal. But thank you so much, Megan, for joining us. Oh, that's so, that I'm delighted. And it's, it's, not, it's a kind of slightly surreal and absolutely wonderful thing to hear oneself described in such um, warm terms. Well, I just think it's really fabulous because uh, being part of this women's writing group that you and I have been part of for a long time, we know a lot of people in the Washington area who write about very different topics. Uh, Mary Eberstadt was one of the was the founder of the Kirkpatrick Society, the writing group that I'm talking about. And she's written very different things, um, things about faith, things about um, birth control. And we have other writers in the group who've written about persecution, religious persecution in the Middle East. And we have writers who have written about more scientific data type things. And I just love that the topic of your book is about reading aloud with your family. And it seems like in this age where people are trying to figure out what to write about, um, there's an infinite number of topics, but you chose a topic that not only is near and dear to your heart, but in sharing this with other families, you're really opening it up a world to them that maybe they haven't considered before. Is that true? Oh, absolutely. And I really, I, I mean, I think this is something, um, you know, it's been very, it's been very important in my life as a mother and, uh, in, you know, having a family reading aloud has been a huge, it's been the one sort of daily non-negotiable, especially when my children were younger. Of course, I, I was easier for me to impose my own requirements on them, but it, it turned out not to be difficult at all because we're still reading aloud. I have two children left at home. The other three have uh, gone off to university. And in fact, the eldest is now married. Um, she's Congratulations. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, it's it, reading together is uh, just this phenomenally nourishing, um, bonding, uh, intellectually liberating experience. And uh, so, you know, part of my desire to evangelize it is just to share the, the goodness that I have experienced personally, as you, as you say. But I'll tell you something else, Gail. Um, I, 
you know, a couple of years ago, I was I was feeling kind of troubled. It was one of those middle of the night moments, and I think this is often where the news will strike us. I was feeling very gloomy about the direction of the culture. There were a couple of things that, that caused this. One was that uh, a very, very dark book had won a prestigious Carnegie Medal. And it's a book for children that is just about as bleak as, and desperate and dystopian as you could possibly imagine. I mean, just dreadful. I think uh, I read your review. You did. You wrote a review of that book, right? No, I skipped. I skipped this one. I, I, it, it, uh, I almost don't want to say it. It's called The Bunker Diary. Uh, and it's a very, very dark book. And I, so, so there I am lying in bed feeling gloomy that this was a, the kind of book that was being celebrated, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with a medal that would then get it into possibly schools. Yes. I'm just thinking, what is it? Why are we doing this to children? Why are we giving, why, why is this what we're holding out for them? And I was also, you know, those nocturnal gloom moments, they, like a lot of things come to mind. So I also, I was thinking about, the way that technology was starting to intrude in a really serious way in uh, my children's lives, in the lives of their friends, in my ability, my own ability to pay attention to people when I was with them. I mean, there was this slight feeling of things kind of crumbling. Right. And I, you know, and so I thought, okay, well, what is the opposite of that? Like, what is the opposite of, of, of this darkness that I'm thinking about? And bam, into my head came this reading aloud that we'd done, I thought, yeah, that's the thing. That is the really, that is the thing. It's like almost the antidote to these other sources of gloom. So I pitched an article to the Wall Street Journal, and that wound up becoming an article that it was published in, I'm going to say July of 2015. The article was called The Great Gift of Reading Aloud. And in it, I basically, you know, talked about this topic and the way that technology had come in, say, halfway through my own experience of raising my yes. and how it was changing things and disfiguring things. And so this is all of this is a, a lengthy backstory to say about this idea of sharing it, that what was incredible about that article was not how it was written. It was how it was received. You know, it went viral. Tens of thousands of people were sharing it. And the thing about it, Gail, was in this fractured society, in this, you know, nonpartisan yes. world we're in, it was the reaction to it was completely positive. People were thirsting for it. They were hungry for it. They were eager to share it. And I thought, this is something like I've touched a little, and I'm not a nerve exactly, but I found a place that people really need. They want more. They need, they want to be nourished in this way. People, people who grew up with reading aloud remember how great it was. People who've done it once or twice recall how great it was. People who haven't done it thought, wait, that's something I want to do. And, um, you know, and also generationally, you see older grandparents and things looking at the way that their grandchildren are being raised and thinking, ah, there's not enough human contact there, right. they need more books, they need more time with their parents. And so this spoke to their anxieties as well. So all of this is an incredibly long-winded way. Uh, so you see why I needed a whole book to just yes. <laughs> um, a thing that I think that, you know, uh, it, it, it's a subject of great importance to me personally, but I also think there's huge resonance in the country because, you know, we're all of us grappling with technology in this new world. And, and many of us have great attachment to the beauty of written English and the beauty of characterization and scenes and things that we get through literature. And we can, we can bring the one to bear to help us, to fortify us against the other. It's a life preserver. It's, it's an antidote. It's a, it's a, it's a broad spectrum antibiotic.
I mean, and, and you know, we haven't even yet talked about any of the, the science and the sort of the history of it either, but reading aloud really, truly, Gail, it is, it is the cure to what ails us. And we're not going to, you know, as someone said to me, you know, the technology genie is not going back in the bottle. Right. Well, okay, you can trick the genie. Actually, in the old stories, the genie does get tricked sometimes back in the bottle, <laughs> only for a little while. And so, so my message to people is, you know, this isn't about renouncing your technology because God knows we all use it. It's about turning off your phone, picking up a book, and reading out loud to the people you love. Well, and technology is great. That's how we're having this discussion right now. We're not in the same room. We are talking to each other in different locations. Thomas, our producer, is in Michigan. You and I are in the D.C. area. So obviously we we don't want to have we we don't want to have an I don't want to smear the Amish, but I know they use some technology. But we I think that's something that a lot of parents struggle with because putting the genie back in the bottle, that's not going to happen in the modern world. Um, And the idea that we can somehow eradicate it from our lives is just not realistic. I, like you, you know, on a personal level, had the same experience with my children. My older children were born before the dawn of the iPhone and uh, my husband and I really wanted to make sure the kids were really good readers. So we didn't have a television and we spent a tremendous amount of time reading with them. And then the oldest child got an iPhone, I think when she was in sixth grade, that's kind of when it was sort of new technology. <clears throat> and then you realize it's the camel's nose under the tent. Absolutely. Exa- almost exactly what happened with us. We also didn't have TV. And then and then, ah. we did. and then it didn't matter that you had a TV because... Right. You had a screen, and I have to do my homework on the screen. Yes. If they're in the room, anything can happen, and it does. <laughs> and that was such a challenge. Um, and, and I felt like it, it was it was very difficult to deal with. And then the schools all required everything be done online. And then with the phones, even if you put restrictions on them, all their friends have phones. So I think we went from a very pro reading household to one that really had a tectonic shift in favor of video and in favor of technology and just, you know, hunch shoulders because you're staring at a computer or a device so much. And then I, in reading your book, I was thinking about this in relation to my childhood, my Dad didn't read me a lot of books, but he told me a lot of stories. He's very creative, and he would just make up stories all the time. Fantastic. And I'm just curious, you know, in reading your book, um, it's fascinating. You talk about the kind of garbage literature that's celebrated right now by some of these awards (laughs) and committees. Um, how, how, How did you go about, with your own children, selecting what you wanted to read. You, you kind of go into it in the book, but I'm curious if you could share with us a little bit about how you selected the, the titles that you, you would read to them at night. And how did that, how did that look? How, how did that come ac- across? So what, what, I mean, I, I now, I mean, I've been, I've heard from people who've read the book and they've said, oh, I wish I could go back and do things again. I wish I could go back and do it differently. <laughs> And I have to say, so do I. If I had known, uh, uh, you know, you, because, of course, in life, you don't, I didn't set yes. out 
you know, I am going to read aloud. I did, in fact, set out thinking I am going to read aloud to my children every night. I did have that one single burning idea. I knew nothing else about becoming a mother. I was, as my father will joke, I was an only child from a broken home. I didn't have a lot of experience of being around little children. I had no idea what to do, really, when I brought home my first daughter, except this one thing. I thought, I am going to read to her. And those early days of reading, I uh, were very formative, not just for her, for my eldest, but for me. I, you know, sitting with her and reading. We had, we were living in Japan at the time when she was born. Uh, not a lot of English language uh, bookstores there. Uh, not a lot of. Uh, I don't know that I had any children's books in the house when I was expecting her. And then I was sent a parcel of books by a dear friend in the states, um, amongst which were uh, the classics. Uh, Good Night Moon and Good Night Gorilla, and so I my my early uh, my early time reading I selected from my tiny library of Good Night Moon and Good Night Gorilla, and then of course the, I also had sorry I did have a book of uh, fairy tales, which was in fact the very first thing I I read to my infant daughter when I brought her home from the hospital with my husband, um, but uh, so so all of which is a way of saying that we I it, our devotion was one hundred percent and intense. Um, the selectivity was um, was by necessity fairly narrow in the early. Right. Um, but but what we did, what we wound up doing, um, is uh, I uh, let's see, how did we choose them? I mean, with picture books, I guess how do you choose picture books? It's partly what you happen to have around. It's partly what comes into the house. You know, if you get a gift or whatever, it's partly what you pick up on a weekend trip to the bookstore or to the library. And so we had a you know a kind of rotating, uh, fairly eclectic collection of, of books. Um, I like many parents found myself eager to revisit classics of my own childhood. I remember yes. my you know the, the story of Babar, um, the story about Ping, which is a p- particular favorite that my grandmother used to read to me. Um, my mother, bless her, has had saved these ancient drooled upon copies of. Um, <laughs> Jan and Jan Berenstain's The Great Honey Hunt. Yes. Uh, Green Eggs and Ham. And uh, so I was able to read to my children uh, the actual dog-eared copies that my mother had read to me when I was little. Um, and uh, and so, that, so, so that's, you know, that was the picture book world. Um, but when it came to chapter books, what I have found, and again, I wish I could go back and do some of this again because I would have maybe expanded the range of things that I read to them or read more nonfiction, definitely would have read more uh, sophisticated poetry. Um, I, I have found that uh, classics make, in my experience, for better read-alouds. Now that might be because these are books that have stood the test of time because they are good and there is so much going on in them. Um, but I found that many many of the modern books, we would sometimes pick up modern books and um, and find that you know, there's not necessarily the richness of language and syntax that you get with 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 19th century and early 20th century books. Uh, there isn't necessarily the breadth of vocabulary that you get. Um, I'm, I don't mean to inculpate all modern writers by any means. There's all sorts of wonderful work being done. I mean, fantastic writers. And there's one, uh, actually, Laura Amy Schlitz, who is in my book. She actually is a librarian in Baltimore and also a brilliant writer. Um, her books are, uh, in a way, a, a kind of breath of, of the richness of the past. Um, but I did so 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 all of which is another yet another long-winded way of saying 
that I did find that uh, I got a lot of um, enthusiasm from books like um, A Little Princess, uh, Treasure Island, the Narnia books, uh, Little House books. My children absolutely adored those books. Yes. And, uh, and, and you know, the Narnia books are, are fantastic um, to read aloud. I, I've probably read them, I don't know, eight or ten times aloud, so I don't look forward to them with quite <laughs> pleasure now. Uh, but, 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 but our experience of the, of the, it's seven books, I think, right? Um, yeah. Our, our experience was always um, attenuated because after the first or one or two times that I read them, The Last Battle, they would never, ever let me read it again. Uh, <laughs> too sad. Uh, <laughs> well, I have to make a true confession that the only poetry that I liked in elementary school was Shel Silverstein. <laughs> oh, yeah. Look, it, there are many gateway and gateways to poetry. That's fine. I did. I, I used to read a lot of Robert Louis Stevenson, and I still do whenever I have a chance. And those are books that just never get tired. And his poetry is great for children, by the way. Uh, Child's Garden of Verses, but many other. Yes. Very witty, wonderful writer. Yes, and I'm curious if you could share about the wonderful story of your experiment in the book. Oh, uh, yes. Oh, I, I love it. Yes. I love this image of walking into this family's house with a box of books. Okay. Can you so set this, the stage. Absolutely. All right. So, so I, you know, here I am, I believe in reading aloud. I believe that it has this power to, and we haven't even talked, Gail, if I may just quickly parenthetically say there are, there's just a constellation of goods that are achieved when we read with children. It uh, strengthens their language skills. It teaches them syntax and grammar in this effortless way. Uh, it also uh, inculcates um, fantastic social and emotional skills. You know, the physiological comfort of sitting with an adult who's reading to you is, um, is, is part of the mechanism that a child can bring to bear to learn to self-regulate. So children who, who get a lot of reading time, you know, they, they, they emotionally develop at an accelerated weight, rate even as they develop in their capacity to experience and understand language. So all this great stuff is going on, not to mention, of course, all the bonding with the adult they're sitting with. Which is fun, just apart from all the science. Oh, it's so rewarding. I mean, it's rewarding for both sides. So, okay, so, but I thought, so here I am. I believe all these things. I've seen it work. I believe in my family, but I need to have some test cases. I need to find some guinea pigs. And I, um, uh, this young family agreed to be my guinea pigs. Uh, the mother, father, uh, three children, a, a girl at the time was 10, and she was a reasonably civilized person already. Um, but she had two little brothers who were wonderful little barbarians. I mean, yes. wild kids. <laughs> and this is a family, I will also say, they're not identified in the book by their real names, so I can be uh, frank about this. They have, you know, giant big screen TV in the family room on all the time. They um, they have screens. You know, they're a, they're a very they're a very tech techy family, right? And not a family that had ever done any reading aloud. And they, as the parents said to me, you know, we always meant to. We know it's kind of a good thing, but we just never got around to it. So so when I entered their home, uh, so they they agreed to be my guinea pigs and. Um, and I and they agreed to do, and this was really quite a heroic uh, endeavor on their part. They agreed to make reading aloud part of every day for three months. They were going to do it was going to be their summer project, and they, you know, they had the freedom to choose when they would read, but they were going to try and give it at least twenty minutes, maybe an hour a day. 
And as you know, Gail, having read to your kids, you know, an hour sounds like a long time, but when everybody is together and really into a story, it just flies by. Right. But these people were going from zero to 60. So that's a big, a big job. Uh, so I turned up at their house, ding dong, the doorbell rings. And I had actually not boxes of books. I had two big bags of books that I had right. collected from my own you know, supply here. I have an ample supply of books. And, um, and the, you know, the little boys in particular came thundering to the front door and, you know, rah, they were roaring. They were so excited. <laughs> and the mom was really, you know, I'm so excited, she said. And the, it was bedlam. I mean, it was noisy, lively, enthusiastic. I mean, everyone was psyched, but they were like out of their heads. And, and the boys, you know, I put the box, the bags of books down on the, on the family room floor and the boys just like lunged at them and they were just pulling books out, throwing them across the right. room. Yay. I love that image. <laughs> I mean, they, just, they were really excited, but there was a kind of, you know, indiscriminate quality to their enthusiasm. They didn't stop and look at the books. They didn't, it was just like, wow, there's this stuff. And so I talked to the parents while they were, you know, the kids were sort of going wild with the books. Of course, the 10-year-old being civilized, you know, extracted a pretty picture book from the from this pile and went and sat down and was leafing through it. I mean, she's a, you know, she... She already had dealt with the program. Yes. And, uh, and I talked to the parents about, you know, what, we, what they would do. And I, I was going to tell them about things like there's a way of interacting with, with small children, which is called dialogic reading, where you sit with the picture book and you ask, you know, you ask them questions about the illustrations. You get them to name things. You ask them to count, you know, how many bunnies are on the meadow or whatever. But this family, they were so enthusiastic, but also so wild. I thought, I don't want to overwhelm them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Just spend the time with the books. Let's see what happens. So I leave them, and I have no idea what's going to happen. Three months later, at the end of the summer, ding dong, I ring the bell, and I come into the house again. And they're really happy to see me. I mean, this had obviously been a fun thing for them. And the room was full of books all on the floor again. But this time it was because... The children had all morning, apparently, eagerly been running through the house, collecting the books from all the places that they had been reading them. So right. the bathroom had tons of books because the mom used to read to the kids in the bath, the little boys in particular. The nursery was full of books. The children's bedrooms, the other children's bedrooms were full of books. They had books in the family room, books in the kitchen. They had taken full advantage of the three months, and they had just read at different times of the day, depending on when the baby had napped. Uh, and, and then, so, so the books were all reassembled in the family room in slightly more order, but this time there was this feeling of happy calm and the baby, the young one who had been, I, I'm just, if I remember correctly, I think he was about a year and a half when I first turned up with the books and he was wild and didn't know what books were or didn't know what they were for. Right. He spent the whole time while I was there on my return visit, crouched on the floor with his little diaper poking out of his trousers the way they, you know, <laughs> just earnestly turning pages of book after book after book. He just paged through and you'd see him look at the pictures and then look at the pictures and then turn the page again. He was, he, he was a child transformed as was his bigger brother who was I think around six at the time. And so the parents, the parents said it was one of the most incredible things they'd ever had happened to them as a family, that they had very quickly found it easy to, to, to get the reading in each day as long as they stayed flexible about when it was going to be. And 
they saw almost immediately a change in the boys. Yeah, again, with the daughter, she was already there. But the family, they said, we, you know, they felt closer. And they were pretty close to start with. But they were, there was a sense of, of calm. Uh, the father told me that, the, um, that, that he'd seen the biggest change, of course, with the boys. That they were calmer, not just at story time, but in the mornings, they noticed, the parents noticed that the vocabulary of the boy, the elder boy in particular, had transformed. He was constantly using words now that they had never said to him in speech. That they, he, he certainly, as the father said, he didn't get that from Kung Fu Panda. <laughs> <laughs> you and, mentioned this in the book. Um, you, you, we just were talking about one of your favorite was Babar, which was also one of my favorite childhood stories. And in the book, you talk about how they use the word, for example, terrain. Yeah. And that, where would you ever encounter that word? Except right. I mean, a- I mean, that's, that's also, and, and, you know, I, I, I have to here pause to put a plug in. I hope Gail that your listeners will actually pick the book up because there is just, I mean, I was thrilled to find how much there is about this topic that is worth knowing. And there's, right. you know, and, and part of it is this, yeah, this, this, um, uh, the, the richness of vocabulary that children can get through picture books is, is, is quite astonishing. You might think, you know, a picture book is, um, well, I mean, they're 32 pages usually, um, especially in the last 50 years, they have not that many words in them from, you know, book to book. It's, you have to go back earlier, in fact, to, to books like Babar and the t- story about Ping, just pick two examples close to my heart uh, to get a lot of a lot of a lot of prose uh, in each on each page Um, and yet there is a fantastic diversity of language that's used in these books and um, I don't have the figure to at the tip of my tongue but a child who gets two picture books read I can look it up for you if you want a child who gets two picture books read to him or her every day We'll pick up, I think it's something close to like uh, 400,000 extra words a year that they might never hear through speech or any other place. Which is just crazy. I mean, think think of what worlds that opens up. Oh, it does. And it equips children to, you know, language is a fantastic gift because it allows people to express themselves. It allows them to understand what's going on around them. I will tell you, my, my, uh, my 17-year-old daughter... Um, the number four child um, had, she was asked the other day by someone, you know, what did reading aloud mean to you? And and this was actually her answer. She said, you know, I didn't know how to explain the things I was feeling. And I got the words from listening to stories read aloud. And she still remembers when she came across the word, I don't remember if it was patronizing or condescending, but that was the idea. Right. And I was reading and she said it was like a light went off on. I mean, she thought, Oh, that's the thing. That was the feeling that so aggrieved her when she had it. You know, she didn't know what it was. It, up until that point, the only language she had to describe that feeling was that someone was being mean. Mean, right? And she didn't. She knew that wasn't right. It wasn't. It wasn't getting it. And you know, as I say in in the book, you know, you know, sort of um, refinement of language. Is, is marvelous because it allows us to get close to the truth. It allows us to say and to say the thing we mean and to know what it is that we are feeling. Now, also, if I can say, in the book, the Babar book, there is a soup tureen. Um, I don't think, actually, that the word tureen is in the book, but I mentioned it 
because you have with picture books not just the language of the text. So there are all kinds of other words in Babar, like marabou bird. I mean, or or floor walker. You know, the the fellows who used to walk through stores and spy out if anybody's misbehaving, or um, you know, it's uh, that sort of thing. Um, yes. But then you have then you have everything that is depicted in the pictures, and this is where I mean, this is where I mentioned dialogic reading. This is where the kind of real turbocharging of language can come. When, you know, you're sitting with your children and you're looking at the story of Babar and you read the story to them with that terrible scene of Babar's mother being shot by the wicked hunter. Right. You know, some people find so traumatic they skip the page, it's just too much. Or they hide, as some children do, from that picture. Right. You know, but you're sitting and you're looking and then you can, you know, the child points to something and you say, yes, that's a coconut and that's a palm tree and that's a... Oh, you know, remember we had, had coconut, you know, juice at, when I came home from my yoga class or whatever. <laughs> right. But in this way, you know, you take the language that's in the book and then expand it out exponentially. And here, here's something else about picture books that is so brilliant, is that they, um, you, you know, English doesn't have to be your first language. Uh, to read an English picture book, an English language picture book. I mean, or conversely, you know, we used to, I used to read some books in Spanish and French to my children, and I am by no means an accomplished Spanish or French speaker. But, you know, yes, yeah. The French. Yeah, and, 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 and the pictures, then you can say, you know, you can say anything you want about the pictures. You can, you can talk about concepts like, you know, above, below, inside, outside. And you can look at the pictures and say, who's, you know, who's inside the house or, or who's on top of the garage, or whatever it is. Um, or you can you can have your children look at colors. And all of this is just fantastic grist for the language mill. I found it very interesting um, that you can also see things through your children's eyes, and all of us have strengths and weaknesses. I myself love vocabulary. I really love the written word, and I am not so I'm not visually. Uh, oriented. I'm not drawn to that as much. And I remember reading a picture book with my son and I'm reading the language and, you know, getting through the story and I was reading it too fast. And he called me out and he said, mom, you need to look at these pictures and understand how detailed they are and how, how long it took the artist to envision this and, and create it for us. And I felt so chastened. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, but isn't that what isn't that great though? He's, I mean, it's great. That, I mean, that, of course, nobody likes to be reprimanded, right? Child, but 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 that's a oh, real, so sweet. Well, and, he, and he's right, Gail. I mean, we need to take time to stop and look at things. So I'm working on this pot, this pet theory I have. Whenever I go to to a museum, I and I spend time, you know, um, which is regrettably not as often as I would like to do. It just it's. Uh, Somehow, some arduous to get downtown sometimes. Same. Uh, but we should go on a museum trip. We definitely should. Yeah. We should. Yeah. Um, when when I but when I do, I feel so extraordinarily refreshed. Even if I'm only looking at a couple of pictures and just spending giving them a little time. And it occurred to me, this is my theory, that actually what is happening then is 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 the kind of deep brain network engagement that we know is so helpful for children when they look at picture books. When you take time to look you know, to really look at something, to really see it, to notice the way that the colors interact, to look closely at the expressions of the, 
you know, the animals or the people or, or whatever, or even the expression that's, that is to say the mood of the weather in a landscape painting. When we, when we take time to look, something shifts in us, right? Something kind of profound happens when you're exposed to beauty and you take the time to look at it and, and t drink it in. And, uh, and I, so I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if actually when your son was telling you to slow down and look at the pictures in the picture book, he was offering you that kind of visual refreshment and that you, being a busy mom, had forgotten to slow right. down. Well, and part of it is I just am not a visual person. And so I think it's a beautiful thing when you come together and take that time it, you do like I could suddenly see it through his eyes and he was it was uh, the book was a magician and his bunny I forget the title of the book but the bunny gets lost and there are pages and pages of where the bunny and the magician are like just a little you know a page apart but Aww. you can see the stars that the that the magician has left and and they're little tiny things like I think my vision's too bad I, I couldn't even like pick it out but he with his eagle eye yeah. um he saw it and it wasn't it wasn't just the skill of the drawing but it was the artist trying to convey like the connection between this magician and his bunny and i just you know i get chills just even talking about it cuz i would have how much do i miss in life cuz i that's just not the way that i tend to yeah the thing when when you are in the uh, in the hands of a great illustrator it's not always obvious at first, you know, you we're as you say, Gail, you're not that visual of a person. You just you flip through and you think, yeah, that's a picture of this. Yeah, that's a picture of yes. that. But when you slow down and you look at the pictures and you notice, you know, I mean, it, it's not I don't suggest this is any kind of like job one has to do. It's more of just the pleasure of kind of slightly unpacking uh, what what an artist has has put into uh, his or her work. You know, you see the shifts in perspective. Uh, the way that mood is evoked by different choices of color, um, it's a tremendously uh, enriching and, and rich experience to spend time with beautiful pictures. Um, one of the points I make in the book as well is that uh, we now have uh, access through picture books to some of the greatest art that humankind has created, you know? I mean, you can, there right. are picture books illustrated by Vermeer and Mary Cassatt, and there are picture books with Picasso sculptures, and there are picture books that are done in the style of other artistic traditions. You know, the wonderful uh, uh, fellow uh, who does classical Chinese calligraphy and painting, um, no, strike that, he doesn't do calligraphy, it's just the classical Chinese painting, wonderful misty mountains and horses and things. To tell, to tell stories that he's inventing now. But, you know, there's this wonderful way in which children and their parents, in looking at these books, you know, it's like entering a museum each time you open some of, the, some of these gorgeous right. books, you know? I mean, so, some are just jolly, you know, lively illustration, you know, lots of um, swooping bits of watercolor, and, and there may be beauty to it, maybe not a lot of intricacy. And then there are, then there are, uh, there are, Paintings so detailed that you could scrutinize them for hours and not see everything that's in them. Uh, so it's this fantastic multiplicity of talent that's available to us, and also inexpensively. I mean, this is like the golden age of, of access to all good things. 
Yeah, it's surprising how much access there is and how inexpensive it can be. I mean, very inexpensive. If you go to the library, you have a, a great amount of selection. And um, and I was interested in reading your book, too, uh, because you have five kids. You have a husband who's also employed. I was curious to see what you were going to tell us about how your family set it up. And I thought it was interesting in your book how you talked about how any parent can do it, caregiver, grandparent, babysitter, whatever. It's, it's not it, it's not um, just one person who's supposed to do it. But it was interesting you share in your book how you were the main person who was doing the reading aloud at night yeah. or, or during the day, too, like during bath time or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that's right. That's right. And I, I, I think that, that's right. I mean, I think that what, I've, what I've observed is in two-parent two households anyway, uh, the parent who enjoys reading aloud will naturally tend to be that one who who does it. Um, I know there are some households where it's the father who absolutely grabs the books and wants to be the one. Um, in fact, I spoke to a mother the other day, and she and her husband both love reading aloud. So for them, their poor children, they get put through a lot of reading aloud. <laughs> because right. both parents really want that experience. And you know, but and and then there are families where you know the the people are shy or not confident and. I, you know, I really encourage people just, you know, you don't have to be heroic. You don't have to read for an hour. You don't have to, you know, it doesn't have to be every night at dinner. I mean, at, at bedtime or whatever, but to find some, some time every day, ideally the same time, because it's always easier to keep those dates with our own lives, you know, right. um, and, and, and just give it a go. Uh, even if you don't, you know, if you don't feel confident in your ability to dramatize what you're reading and lots of us don't. You know, the author has done that work for you. You just just say the words and, and the magic will begin to come. You know, in our family, what we did, uh, my husband, when our children were young, worked very, very long hours and didn't get home until 10 o'clock at night most nights. So uh, the whole bedtime routine was up to me. And, um, and so I actually found, I mean, reading aloud was not merely uh, my favorite part of the day, but it was an immensely helpful um uh, what destination, I suppose, for all of us as we got, you, I mean, you know, Gail, you have more children than I do. I mean, it, it's just going to be only a, slightly a, a wild <laughs> scrum of getting dinner and getting the kitchen done and getting everybody upstairs, you know, chased into their jummies and their toothbrushing and their have you flossed. And I mean, it can be forever, really. But we had always this wonderful thing waiting for us at the end. And, um, and it really gave order and structure, uh, to our lives as a family. Uh, and again, as an only child from a broken home, I had to learn how to do this, you know, from scratch. Right. Uh, and I, you know, I found leaning on the books and leaning on that, that book time really helped me. It helped me learn how to be a mother. Yeah. And I think that can't be understated because, um, I think my experience was I really wanted to have that special time with the kids and like you, my husband worked crazy hours and was rarely home. And when he would come home and try to read to the kids or read to them on the weekend, he would frequently fall asleep with a child <laughs> in his arms. <laughs> and that was a day before self days before cell phone. So I don't have any cute pictures of him doing that, but, <laughs> but I think that's the, um, I think that's the challenge. I, I want, I think everyone needs to read your book and understand the science the data behind why this is so beneficial, like apart from the enjoyment of it. Right. I, I think if parents are trying so hard all the time to do helpful things for their kids, right? Right. This actually, I will say, 
this is not me speaking. This is this is social science speaking. Exactly. Reading to your children is one of the most important indicators of their prospects in life. That actually, I'm I'm quoting from. Um, oh, I knew this was going to happen. I'm quoting from a very eminent social scientist whose name will come to me in a moment. Um, <laughs> I understand that. <laughs> but, but but it's as they say a true fact. Um, it is it is it is the the probably the single most nourishing thing you can do for your family. And and here's the thing also that that I think we need to keep in mind. You know, there are single fam single parent families. There right. are families that are working crazy hours. You know, actually, for the busiest families, it's almost the best thing of all because so much is achieved during that time. You know, you just ten minutes of your precious time with your children. Use this in that time, and you achieve a multiplicity of ends. You know, you build your relationship with them and their relationship with you. You build their relationship with each other if you have more than one child. You build their language, you build their social emotional skills, and you really set them on a path uh, for a, for success uh, in school and in life. And can I mention one other thing that Please. comes along with this? Please uh, do. That is, so this is where the age of distraction comes in. By our distracted age, I of course refer to technology. Right. You know, our attention spans are all getting shorter. And for you and me, I mean, whether we have a long attention span or not, that's something sort of up to us. But our kids absolutely must be able to pay attention if they are to succeed in school. And in, and if they succeed in school, then they're, on again, on this great trajectory for, for a productive life. It has been, there's a, a strong, I think it's not so much correlation, It's there's an absolute line that can be drawn from the attention span persistence of a four-year-old child to the likelihood of that child graduating university by the age of 25. And there are all sorts of other breakdown bits and pieces in there. Um, learning to pay attention to a story is not just a nice way for a kid to spend some time. It's, it's an immensely helpful uh, skill, kind of life skill to pick up that has ramifications all through life. And I want listeners to be excited about this and not feel like it's a difficult thing. And that's why I brought up that story of your experiment in the book with this very busy family with, like you mentioned, all the screens and how just in three months time, there was a dramatic difference in uh, what you observed from the first time you dropped off the, the bags of books to when you returned to check in on them. Oh, yeah, and they I saw a huge change in three months in their kids. A huge improvement, I should say. And I think that uh, should be very encouraging for everybody. And like you said, it can be 10 minutes. It can be an hour. It can You can work up to it. Um, that family, I think, like you said, was gung-ho on you know, really jumping into it as a project. Uh, but it doesn't have to be that much of a project, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I wouldn't, I don't want anyone to feel like, oh, this is yet another thing I have to do. I can't believe this woman is telling me, that, you know, she's telling me to turn off my phone. First of all, I don't want to do that. And she's telling me to read my kids. I don't have time. <laughs> no, that is not the attitude. The attitude is go for it. It's fun. It's, 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 it can be actually exciting and you, and you, it's something you will never regret. You know, I mean, I will say, speaking for myself, you, Gail, are probably a paragon of motherhood. I am oh, no, 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 no. Let, let, I just have to interrupt for that. I, I just struggle, but I love my kids. No one loves the kids more than I do. <laughs> my children. <laughs> well, I love my children too. 
I, I would not say that I have been a flawless mother, but in this regard, you know, I would say that the time I have spent reading to them is the best that I have done for them, and I don't regret a minute of it. And I press this on other families, not because I want anyone to feel guilty, but because I want them to experience some of the greatness of this, this fortifying practice that will help them get a little, you know, a little space, a little respite from the distractions of technology. I want to underscore that, and I would like you to say that again about how it's not to make feel, people feel guilty or force them on it, but just because you yourself have seen such enormous benefit from this practice that you want to share it with the world. Absolutely. And I will tell you also, I mean, I, I want people to know uh, the kind of joy that I have experienced, but not because it has anything to do with me, but because I want them to have it themselves. And also, I want through the Enchanted Hour, the book, to um, to give people the evidence that that will, if they're if they're not persuaded, I hope it will persuade them. And I hope that people will also use this book, those who love reading aloud already, as a as their as their sacred text in their own evangelization. Right. It's, it's a beautiful book, and that has nothing to do with me, by the way. That is the brilliant Robin Billardello and Fritz Metsch at HarperCollins. The Robin designed the front cover and Fritz designed the interior design. They are they are magically talented people. And so The Enchanted Hour is actually physically a very beautiful book and thus not embarrassing to give to others as a gift. <laughs> <laughs> well I will describe the cover of it. It has these beautiful books. A lot of the covers of the books have just uh, such pretty uh, designs on them, butterflies, beetles. Uh, some of the titles are Narnia, Arabian Nights. And I can tell you, I agree. It is for a person who's not even very visually oriented, it I do love books. And so it the the cover of it makes you just want to jump into the book. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I mean, I, of course, it's very mercenary and self-satisfying of me to say that, but <laughs> But but it's true. I mean, it is the kind of it's the kind of book you kind of want to touch. And I'm I'm thrilled if it gets through to a non-visual person like you, Gail. Then that means they have really, I mean, they've really conquered the world. Then because um you know they they know their they know their business. These designers they are really really magical work. Well, in the title, the Enchanted Hour. Enchanted is not a word that I think we use very often anymore. Do you? I, it's something we need more of. It, I we need more enchantment in this in this. In this fractured time, uh, I also just you know here I am talking to you on your on your show right in D.C. Um, you know this is this is a book for everybody. This is a book for people who are on the right. It's a book for people who are on the left. Uh, there is a there is a chapter about uh, um, about uh, acculturation through books about how reading aloud can be a time to you know not only share with your children things that you find important stories that really resonate with you, but also to tell them something about the world that you want them to know. And uh, for conservatives, certainly, this is a, this is a no-brainer, right? It's a way to, <laughs> to inculcate uh, lessons of history that we, we might want our kids to have. And that's true for people of every background. And you know what? Fair enough. I mean, we, we have our families. We want our families to reflect or at least to know what we, what you know, our, our children to know what we think. And, uh, and, and picture books, chapter books, that's a wonderful way to achieve that end. Absolutely. And I love the fact that you said it's for people on all sides of the political spectrum or not on the political spectrum at all. And mm, I yeah. think that is a bridge that I've certainly experienced. You know, being in D.C., they're not a tremendous amount of conservatives, let alone Republicans. 
And I can tell you that the entree of a discussion about a book that you love is something that people of all different backgrounds can connect on. And I think, you know, like you were saying at the very beginning of our discussion in these very fractured, fractured times, fractious times as well, that is something that not only gives us the ability to connect with other people, but also gives our children the ability to connect with people from different backgrounds. Yeah, I think that's right. I think books are, books are, are they, they now seem to me more like a bridge uh, over the troubles of life uh, than they ever have before. I mean, I, you know, we know that let's say it's pouring with rain, you can sit inside of the book and it's a wonderful consolation to that. But, you know, a, a book shared out loud is a bridge over conversation that might be difficult to have. You, you know, if you're reading with a teenager, Yes, <laughs> uh, you know, but that's but it's a sincere thing because look, I, I will say I always use my poor son as an example. But you know, when he was thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, I mean, we just did not have that much in common, and it was not easy to have right. you know, flowing conversations. But where we could meet, we could meet in a book, and I would read with him, and we experienced the story side by side, and you know, something really profound was happening, and it kind of carried us over, and in that way, it was a it was a bridge. It was a books are also a bridge when you have little squalling infants and toddlers and it's difficult to know and you can't really have conversations with them either. But if you're reading with them, everybody's engaged in this wonderful thing and you're kind of up above the choppy waters of toddlerhood. And and then just the last point I'd like to make is that this is also true. We haven't talked much about it yet, but uh, about a, we, we, late in life, you know, when with our elders, we can read with our elders and we can, you know, if we go to someone's in the hospital, you go to the hospital room and it's difficult to make conversations. So what do the doctors say? When are you going to get out of here? No, you read aloud and that person who's in the hospital bed gets delivered from the hospital for a little while and you are connecting with them because there's something you can share, something, a gift you can give them. And again, it's that, it's that fantastic bridging that a book will serve when it's difficult to have a conversation. Oh, I love that. And I will share that it was bittersweet to read in your book about your children going off and not being part of the the reading time anymore. And I've certainly experienced that. I have two children who have left for college. And I think parents, at least my experience, I shouldn't generalize to other people, but I think you get stuck in the weeds and it's all making food and doing laundry and taking them to activities, taking them to school, making sure their homework is done. And you get so caught up in that, that you tend to forget that this time is very fleeting. So Megan, what was your experience of that as your kids went off from home or, or, you know, weren't part of that time anymore? Oh, it was it was poignant, right? It always is. I mean, I I think I I think most mothers we struggle a little bit with the degree to which we can press our children to spend time with us, and also the un, the understanding that we really don't make you know nobody enjoys being compelled to do things. Um, so I I really had to respect when my children left the reading circle one by one, um, and uh, you know some stayed quite a long time. I would say my first. Uh, left at 12, but she had had, you know, so much reading aloud, that poor thing. And she was the oldest <laughs> of the family. And then the second, uh, the boy, we, he and I kept reading aloud until he was probably 14, maybe 15. Um, and then my third daughter stayed till she was, uh, I think it was 16, but I, they, she thinks it was 15, but anyway, it was quite a long time. Um, and my fourth daughter left early at, I think she was 13, maybe 12. 
And then my last one, who's 13 now, uh, still listens every night. We have a wonderful uh, practice of reading aloud together in the evenings. And I am, I, interestingly though, the 17-year-old, number four, has lets me read to her in the mornings sometimes now over breakfast. Oh. Yeah, so she gets ready to go to school and uh, sits at the kitchen bar, and I make us both a coffee and and can often get a couple of pages in before she has to zoom off. So oh, that sounds amazing. Yes, yeah, so you can return sometimes. Not it's, it's difficult. I think that I think the advice I would give any family is start as soon as you can and go as long as you can, and then and then don't and don't stop until they tell you you have to stop. On that note, we do need to stop, but I would like to share with everyone where they can find your wonderful book. Thank you. Well, I can tell you, there, here, uh, they, people can go to any reputable bookstore and possibly disreputable bookstores, I don't know, um, <laughs> to get The Enchanted Hour. Um, you can also, if you like, um, it can be, there are, you can buy it uh, from my website. There are links to Amazon and Barnes and Noble and, uh, and um, Indie. Uh, what now I forgot what the other one is, um, and also to HarperCollins directly. And my website is uh, MeganCoxGurdon.com, and that's spelled M-E-G-H-A-N-C-O-X-G-U-R-D-O-N.com. And that also has, uh, you know, links to, well, you can buy the audiobook there, whatever you like. Um, and by the way, I recorded the audiobook for Harper, too. So, oh, that's great. I didn't realize that. Yeah, if you're not fed up with the sound of my voice now, that might be a way to do it. <laughs> How perfect. I just want to thank you so much for speaking with us about this. And I hope that anyone listening to this will share their experiences with us. You can go on my website and uh, share any comments you have about your experiences reading as a child aloud or reading now with your children. And I would love to share them with Megan, too, once I receive them. Oh, definitely. I I love hearing people's stories. It's one of the most fun parts of this job. I really appreciate you being with us today, Megan. Yeah, thank you so much, Gail. Um, It was a lot of fun talking about it. You can like me on Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter. You can follow me on Instagram. You can subscribe to this podcast, Right in DC, on iTunes. You can subscribe to my YouTube channel. You can support this podcast on Patreon. We have brand new Right in DC t-shirts as gifts. I also want to thank Trio Caliente, which is a local music group for providing the music for the podcast. This is Right in D.C. You're Right in D.C. with Gail Trotter.